Um, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible study this, this evening. And if you uh, have a phone, that's fine. You want to track on your phone or tablet, no problem at all. Um, let me start by just sharing a little bit of our heart um, in this. You know, we, we rolled out, hey, we want to we share the vision of what we're trying to do with building a disciple-making culture at LCF. Um, and a part of that is these meetings um, to gather together, to encourage one another, to um, share and sharpen and equip, but also just to help uh, along the way. There certainly will be hurdles in the midst of creating a culture of discipleship at LCF. And um, I, we want to host these meetings quarterly. Um, <laughs> And they're going to be geared for the folks discipling. But if you are here seeking to be discipled, um, we're glad you're here. I think there's going to be some things that you can learn and and engage with here as well. But um, our hope is to do this and to gather those who are discipling folks on a quarterly basis to celebrate what God's doing, to um, sharpen each other in just the skill and the art of discipling somebody. Um, as well as, you know, conquering some of the hurdles that we might run into uh, in the relationships that we have with folks. Um, So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little time studying the Word to to begin with, um, and then we are going to introduce to you um, a tool or a way to engage with Scripture, um, a Bible reading method that will help you engage with the people in that scriptural rhythm that we talked about last time we were together. Um, and then we're going to finish with kind of an evaluation tool that just helps us continually monitor where we're at in the marks of a devoted follower of Christ, where we're at with the person that we are discipling. Um, so to jump in, we're going to jump into Second uh, Timothy 2 tonight. So if you've got a Bible you want to open up there, we'll go in there in just a minute. Um, Sherry, can I ask you a question? If I were to give you an option, two choices tonight, if I offered you a million dollars right now, or if I said I'll give you a penny tomorrow, and for the next month it's going to double, which one would you choose? Take the mill, yeah. That's all right, it's good. I mean, I probably would at, at first guess too, but... I were to tell you, 25 days in, you're sitting at about, if you took the penny, you're sitting at about um, $167,000. But on day 27, you're at $668,000. And if we extended it to the longest month possible, 31 days, that penny turns into $10,700,000. So, penny is a good option, right? This plays into our conversation in this, just studying the word together tonight, um, the power of multiplication. To think of what starts on day one is a simple penny, and t- day two turns into two cents, and then four, and then eight, and it goes on and on and on. To, to get to 31 days later, to 10,700,000. Um, what I'm gonna share tonight, this study of the word is, is not my own. Um, I've, I've walked through this um, 
through some other resources and uh, you know through downline ministry through Ken and Vaughn um, his ministry uh, so this isn't new and it's but it's incredibly important that um, we take a little bit of time just to study take a take a dive into his word and study this idea of multiplication when we were here in March Tim had said discipleship a, a distinction of discipleship is that it starts with the end in mind you guys remember that um, and that's incredibly important uh, just principle for us as we desire to build a, cu- a culture of discipleship, but as we start in these relationships, maybe you're years in or weeks in, maybe you haven't quite started yet, but that idea of the conversation, the thought of multiplication is incredibly important, and it's, it's a key piece to discipleship, and it's a key piece to us building a discipling culture um, here at the church. Let me say it another way, uh, give you another example. Um, when we think about building a discipling culture at the church, one of the phrases that I've brought up in small group leaders, well, if you're a small group leader here, you've heard this before, but we want to put a paintbrush into the hands of every person here at our church. And when you think about it, when you go buy a house or an apartment, what's the first thing that you do? You paint it, Right. You make it your own. You know, when Kelsey and I um, found our home in Liberty, before we even put an offer in on the house, we were walking through the house, and literally, we walked through the kitchen, and she said, well, that's got to go, which was this deep red, blood red, like, kitchen paint in the, in the kitchen that was just, it was bad. I agreed with her. But um, the first thing we did, I'm not sure had we had moved in yet uh, before we painted the kitchen. <laughs> Because um, we wanted it to be our own. And, and that's a key piece to the thought of, hey, how are we going to build a discipling culture within our church? Well, we want to put a paintbrush in everybody's hand, particularly our leaders right now, as we talk about building a culture, putting that paintbrush in somebody's hand and inviting them to come paint their kitchen, right? Um, consider this for a second. When you think about Paul and his work in the New Testament. Um, you think about the fact that the gospel swept across Asia Minor in 60 years. Think about the ownership in that. The amount of people that it took to invest in and own this idea of discipleship and multiplication and how it reached the expanse that it did. Why were they so effective, and how come we're not? You know, we're, we being the American church, like, how come we can have so many churches here in America and have the lack of effect that we feel like we could have, where Paul and a few men reached across the entire Asia Minor, which is modern-day Greece, Turkey, Syria, that, you know, that area there, the Middle East, um, I'm going to give you a, an answer right off the bat. And I think it's one, of, it's one of strategy. And the thought is this. See if this works. We have taken the thought that Paul carried, which was to go and tell, and we've switched that with the thought of come and hear with the church. The idea that discipleship within the church is something the pastors do 
or the um, small group leaders do. And you come and you invite your friends to this place and you hear it here. We, we take very little ownership of the idea of discipleship. And that's, that's the heart. I mean, you guys have heard us talk about this for several months now. That's the heart behind um, the effort that we're making here is to put the effort in as a church body to lead people to a place where they see it as their um, role to go and make disciples. Uh, that's something that's going to take a long time. You know, we're not trying to hurry this discipleship culture along, but it's something that we desire to see take place, um, to move people from a place of comfort to a place that's a little uncomfortable and encouraging giving away the gift of the gospel that they have. Um, there is uh, an incredible um, little passage of scripture in 2 Timothy that I want to spend some time uh, studying with you guys. <clears throat> we know um, Paul as an evangelist, right? As, the, as a man who had a massive influence on the gospel, you know, writing 13 of the 27 letters that we have in the New Testament. Um, but uh, there, there's a distinction that I want to make that sometimes we kind of skip over, uh, is the reality that Paul not only writes to churches, you know, we have the letters to Colossae, to Corinth, to Thessaloniki, you know, some of those places, but he also writes to people. He writes to Titus and Philemon and Timothy. Um, and I want to spend some time looking uh, at the letter he wrote to Timothy. Um, Second Timothy was written, quote unquote, on his deathbed. You know, he's facing, he's in prison and he's facing his impending judgment. Um, but he doesn't write a letter, just a blanket letter to all the churches. He writes to one individual. He writes to Timothy. And there's, I think there's a reason he does that. Um, but I want to spend some time looking at uh, this letter, because I think there's a piece, there's a, if you just sat down and read 2 Timothy, uh, you could probably read over this passage really quickly and not realize the impact and the massive influence it can have on the idea of the discipleship, the strategy behind discipleship. And that's 2 Timothy uh, 2, 2. So if you want to open your Bible, you can open up there. And this really is Paul encouraging us to truly embrace the idea of go and tell. Uh, I'm going to read 2 Timothy 1 and 2 to get us started, but it says, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard me, from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's it. That's the passage. There are two things in this passage that I think are really important. Two key things to catch. There are four generations in this text, and there's four key words, and that's what I want to spend our time looking at tonight. Um, so what are the four generations? Why don't you just shout them out to me? What's the first one? Paul. Let me do this. Paul. Who's the second generation? Timothy. And who's the third? Faithful men. And who's the last? Others. 
You remember the illustration, take a penny or a million dollars? If you can see this for what it is, Paul invests incredibly hard into Timothy. Timothy, he charges Timothy to invest this into other men, the faithful men, and from there to others. And look how fast this thing is growing, right? So what happens in that dash? What takes place between Paul and Timothy that is so impactful? This whole process of multi-generational discipleship starts between one individual and another. You know, when we consider this for ourselves, we're embarking on relationships and establishing a discipleship relationship with somebody. So I'm going to ask you the question, what are you creating within that dash? I have been blown away by the power that God instills in individuals that he entrusts us to move within that dash to make an impact for his kingdom. So that dash shows the power of intentional investment. Consider what you're unlocking in that moment when you invest intentionally with some other person. What lies within that dash is also the foundation for this multiplication that we see in this picture. And with the thought that Tim said, beginning discipleship with the end in mind, you see the impact that that dash can have on generations. That, that is a place that I've been really challenged this week as I was getting ready for this and just thinking about, I don't think that way very often. I, I think about the one person you know, the Timothy in this scenario. And I don't really consider what is going to happen after. And I don't, if it's just short-sighted on my part or what, but it has really blown me away and challenged me on, gosh, I really need to see the bigger picture here of what takes place as we step into these relationships. There is so much power for influence within that dash. So it makes us ask the question, what, what on earth took place within that dash? And um, there's four key words that I think help us understand a little bit more about this text. Um, so let's take a look at those four key words. The passage, 2 Timothy 2.2, starts with what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. The idea of heard, this is a key word. Um, and I believe it's vitally important to understand what registers for Timothy when he reads this letter, as he reads these words, as you, what you've heard from me. Um, I think the tendency for you and I is to read and think, what I've heard calculates to what I've read about Timothy in the letters that we have, or what I've read about Paul from the letters that we have from Paul. Um, but there is way more context behind this word heard for Timothy and Paul. Why? There's, there is relationship behind it. Um, if you've got your Bible, turn back with me to Acts 14. Uh, and I want to just show you a couple things that take place in the life of Paul. So Acts 14 takes place when Paul is on his first missionary journey. And he comes to... Uh, the cities of Iconium and Lystra. 
And in Acts 14, uh, verse 19, after he had left Iconium, he'd been chased out by um, some Jewish zealots. And he lands in Lystra and he starts trying to share the gospel and talk. And this is what happens is some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. This is verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. He got up and went back into the town. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I think we probably know at face value about Paul is that he did consider his life worth nothing. You know, we, we read him and we say, he says that in several different ways throughout his letters. Um, but I wish there was so much more detail in this passage. Well, what was that like? Like, did he get up grimacing in pain and drag himself back in? You know, was he, was he fearful? Or was he like, just like stone cold convinced that no matter what happens, I'm going back in? Or was it like a Popeye moment where he chugs his can of spinach and hops, you know, just marches right back in there? We don't know what takes place. We don't really know who all is there. Um, But whatever it looks like, he went back into the city. And this is something that the courage, the boldness in that moment... um, Try to, put it, try to put it into your context somehow, some way. Now you get beat so badly you're left for dead that they think you're dead. Uh, are you turning around, going right back in for more? Or are you running to the hospital? Uh, Paul considered his life absolutely worth nothing in, in, the, in terms of sharing the gospel with the Gentile nations. So we fast forward a little bit. Go to Acts 16. Um, Paul moves on and continues to share the gospel. He ends up going back to Jerusalem after his first missionary journey, is a part of the Jerusalem Council. And then, you know, Paul has his disagreement with Barnabas, and the two of them split, and now they're getting ready to go out on their second missionary journey, right? Um, I want you to take a look at the first five verses of of 16. Paul went on to Derbe and to Lystra. We know know Lystra already, right? He goes back to the city where he was stoned and left for dead and went marching back in. And there was was a, a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but the father was also Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. And Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him. Um, so Acts 14, first missionary journey. We know what happens in Lystra. You jump forward to Acts 16, and he's leaving for his next missionary journey. And the first places he goes is to this very city. And who's he met by? Brothers and sisters. So we don't know much, but we know that there is a, a established group of believers, a church in Lystra. 
And in that place, he gets introduced to Timothy. He doesn't know Timothy. We know that he's, Timothy is a son of a believing Jewish woman, but he also has a father who's a Greek. Um, and we know that the brothers and sisters there in Lystra spoke highly of him. That's all we know. But Paul knows Timothy has a good reputation. And here's the thing we have to catch. The believers were encouraged in Lystra, and Paul's willingness to say, hey, my life is worth nothing, that we have now have an established church, that the gospel has roots there. And so when Paul comes back, he finds a believer, a, a, man, a man who has a good reputation and says, I want to bring you underneath my wing. Come with me. Follow me on this journey that we're going we're to go together. And from that point, Timothy is with Paul for his entire second missionary journey, for his entire third missionary journey. Um, why would he want to take Timothy? Why would he walk into a town knowing an individual? He doesn't, actually doesn't know the individual, but just say, hey, why don't you come with me? Any guesses? He was younger for the future, yeah. I don't know this for a fact, but I think Timothy has Jesus' words in Matthew 28 ringing through his head to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so he sees a young individual who is, has a good reputation, and he says, hey, come with me. I, I don't know the context of, you know, biblically of what Lister was like or even what Timothy might have been doing before that, but to be invited by a man who, I, we don't know if Timothy was at the first, you know, uh, moments of Paul being beaten in Lister or not, but for sure it impacted his life and the fact that there are now believers that were established in Lystra and you got to imagine that he knew the story. There was this dude who got beaten so badly, everybody thought he was dead, but somehow he got himself back up and marched himself back into the city to share the gospel. And then when the town, the buzz in the town goes wild, the Paul's back, and Paul approaches him and says, hey, why don't you come with me? Um, that's probably a pretty compelling invitation. So Paul takes Timothy with him. Um, and if we go back to 2 Timothy 2.2, um, when Paul is writing from his deathbed, he inks this letter to Timothy, and when he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, are you beginning to understand all that that entails? I mean, this is not just head knowledge. Paul, or excuse me, Timothy has walked from town to town endless hours on the road in conversation with Paul. He's been with him when he's standing in the midst of hostile crowds, boldly proclaiming the gospel. You think about all the things that he was saying to the brothers and sisters within the churches that they visited, the ways that he encouraged those people, the miracles that he witnessed, the beatings that he witnessed, it probably was a part of, how he handled hard situations 
how he handled conflict, how he handled inappropriate praise that came Paul's way. There is so much more to the phrase heard than we just give it at face value when we read through this text. There is a relationship here that knows years and years of crazy experiences and adventures together. Um, when you think about that, I mean, if you want to go, you can go back and read through Acts and read through some of these adventures and stories that they were a part of. And there is so much more to this phrase of Paul saying, hey, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, there's an experience there like none other for that person. It is life as we go for Paul that he takes Timothy with him. Um, if we want to get specific, we can turn to 2 Timothy 3. Um, in verses 10 and 11, Paul gives us a little bit more detail on some of the things that have been heard. Um, he says, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me from Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all. So what are some of those things? What are some of the things we see? Teaching, right? Before this, in, in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. Guard your good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So Paul had given Timothy all kinds of sound doctrine, all kinds of good teaching. And Paul says to Timothy, you know what I've taught you. You better guard it. Over the course of two missionary journeys, he had deposited everything he knew to Timothy. The second thing we see is what? Conduct. A way of life that Paul lived. Acts 20, 24, and I think this verse essentially defines Paul's way of life. He says, I consider my life worth no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course of ministry I've received from the Lord, to testify the gospel of God's grace. If I were to say these words to you, I consider my life of no value. The gut reaction would be like, no, no, T.A., you, you, you have value. You, you, you have these things. Your life is worth something. But consider Timothy here. Your first interaction with Paul might have been you watching this man be stoned and beaten, dragged out of town, what seemed to be dead, marches his way back in, and then a, couple, you know, a little time goes by, and he gets invited to go with Paul. Paul says, hey, come with me. Timothy knows, man, this guy knows that his life is worth nothing, and I want to follow that. I want to see what the, why he is the way he is. All he cares about is glorifying Christ. And that, how, I don't know how Timothy could see anything else in Paul but that being the sole aim of his life. You see, the point I'm trying to drive home is that Timothy knew Paul, knew him through and through. You know, all the traveling that they did. I mean, I've, I've been in Turkey and followed the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. Those, those, all those towns are not very close, and there's a lot of 
road and mountains and things to get through to cover, um, to get from town to town. And there's a lot of time spent with Paul. And surely Paul's more holy than I am, but I'm sure Paul still had his moments. And Timothy saw those. He knew Paul through and through, the good and the bad. All right, let's keep going. In 2 Timothy 3, what's the next thing? Purpose. Um, Paul's words to Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You think that had some meaning to, Paul, to Timothy? Next thing, faith. Consider how Timothy knew Paul's faith, how Paul modeled his faith for him. Can you imagine? All right, can you just imagine walking town to town with Paul? What an amazing experience that would be, huh? All of the persecution, the belittling, belittling comments, the hatred, Paul's patience in the midst of that, Paul's conviction in the midst of that, Paul's unwavering demotion, devotion in the midst of that. The faith to know that this effort that we're going through, that we're enduring, is not wasted. You know, we stand on the shoulders of Paul's and Timothy's several thousand years later, and you know, we know because we've seen God move miraculously through the life of Paul, through the life of Timothy, that it's easier for us to say, hey, we, we, have, a, we have faith even in the moments that we don't know what the Lord is up to. We don't know, you know what he's going to do next. But a lot of times we, we are banking on the faith that we see from guys like Timothy and Paul in the Word. Um, next thing, Patience. Paul telling Timothy, I long to go to Rome. You think about that. Uh, wrote the letter to Romans. Um, he longed to go, but the path was never open. You think about modeling that, that Paul had this great understanding that, you know what, his desires were secondary to what God would have him do, uh, where God was calling him to go. There's a greater thing to teach the younger, is there a greater thing to teach the younger generation here? That patience. Um, when we think about the world that our high schoolers and college age kids are growing up in, where everything is at their fingertips and it just seems to be getting faster and faster and faster, patience is an incredible thing to be modeling for the folks that are growing up behind us here and the generations behind us. Um, the picture of what was heard is being painted here, right? Are you guys following with me? Tracking? Yes, okay. Um, man, so I think as Timothy read that and said, the things you've heard me say, I think there were just a myriad of memories and pictures and things that were flooding into Timothy's mind. Um, the next thing on Paul's list is love. You know, Paul calls him my son. You know, over the course of years together, the affection between Paul and Timothy is so much so that he calls him his son. He's not his biological father, but as a spiritual son, he loves him in the same way, so dearly. I was discipled by a guy about 15 years ago um, named Joe Belzer. Some of you guys probably know Joe. Um, but even to this day, Joe always finished his conversations the same way. Um, even to this day, I talked to him a month, month and a half ago. Uh, in the midst of our conversation, he ends up with, man, T.A., I'm just incredibly proud of you. And the Lord is 
using you and way to go, man. Just keep, keep going. Always encouraging, always reminding me that he loves me. And um, every time it's uplifting. I mean, it could be months, years between our interactions sometimes. Um, but every time, that's the type of guy I get from Joe. These discipleship relationships that we're stepping into, they should grow to a place of familial love um, with the people that you disciple. The next three things kind of rattle together in Paul's list in 2 Timothy 3, which is endurance, persecution, and suffering. Um, You think about Paul. Uh, Let me go back to 2 Corinthians here real quick. Think about the life that Paul lived. Uh, This is really, truly amazing. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm talking like a madman here. I'm a better one. Far, with far more laborers, with more, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I've faced dangerous, dangers from the rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There's a daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. What? Did you catch all that? He lists this gamut of awful circumstances that he's endured, that he's suffered through. And his last thing he says is not to mention the other things, but there is a daily pressure on me, my concern for the churches. So yeah, we can... We can take Paul's history and experience and go, man, that dude was for real. But in the same time, Timothy knew that Paul in 2 Corinthians. He knew the man that didn't care about the beatings, but he cared about the churches. He cared about what was happening, what God was going to do through the people that he was ministering to. What God can do through this group of leaders is, it gives me chills. Um, you know, I, we don't live in a day and age where we face a ton of persecution here in America. But at the same thing, we can model the love that Paul had for the churches in the same way. We may not endure a night and a day at sea, but we can model that heart and that love over everything else in our life for the churches. And I think about that with this group of people, and I think about how that can impact not only here at LCF, but here in our community. Man, that's incredible. The last thing he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 is he lists off Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. And he goes from the generalities to specifics. He lists where it all starts. What you've heard me say, he shared this in, uh, first in 2 Timothy 
two, and then he shares it um, in three, going from the generalities of teaching, conduct, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. And then he gives three specific cities, three places that Timothy would take note of. He'd vividly remember what took place there. I think when we think about the relationships that we're trying to establish, my encouragement to you is to consider what it's going to take to literally open yourself up and your life to other people and say, follow me. All of my insecurities and weaknesses, you get to know them. All of my strengths, all of the things that I passionately pursue the Lord in, you get to know those too. And I want you to hear me, I want you to hear me say that God uses all of it. He uses all of it from the greatest insecurities and weaknesses that you have to the greatest strengths that you have. And as we go through this, we're going to jump back to those keywords. The first keyword was heard. The second here is the idea of commit. Some of your translations might say entrust. I actually kind of like entrust better. Um, This is the only command in this text. Entrust implies that you are in a relationship, that you are imparting this knowledge, this, this experience to another individual. Um, you know, when you put money in a savings account or a CD or something of that nature, um, when you come back to it in 30 years, you expect two things. You expect the original investment and you expect what? A return, right? You expect a, some additional things. And I think th- that translates. When we say, hey, when Paul says, hey, commit this and trust this to somebody, we ought to think in those terms that we ought to invest so deeply into somebody that we can come back to that relationship 15, 30 years down the road and we still see a strong believer standing firm in the faith of the gospel. But prayerfully, we see somebody who has now their own branch of discipleship that has their own faithful men, that has their own others growing into it. That generational idea is so important to this text. And so Paul's saying, okay, what you've heard me say, now entrust it to somebody. Commit it to another individual. And who is that individual? Faithful men. And I think he uses faithful men in particular there. It's not just anyone who will listen. He he encourages us to, to be selective in that person, a faithful man or woman. Um, this encouragement is vital. He doesn't start, he doesn't start with others. He starts with specifically faithful men. Um, as you begin this discipleship journey with people, uh, I want to encourage you to consider what Tim taught us in the disciple in the discipleship disciple making mini series. Um, he introduced this idea of we're looking for fat people, we're looking for faithful, available, and teachable people. And when we look for those in pieces, it's incredibly important because you don't want to spend your time chasing somebody who doesn't really want to meet with you. You don't want to spend your time chasing somebody who really isn't going to be willing to commit to reading the text that you're supposed to be studying. You want to invest it into someone who is willingly teachable, who's willingly available for you and is faithful to that relationship. Um, Don't spend your time chasing somebody that doesn't want to be there. That's the the strategic part of it. 
there's certainly an evangelistic portion of this that is helpful. Um, okay, I wanna, I'm moving too slow here. Sorry, Brian. Um, the last thing, final thing is others. Uh, and I want to clarify what we started with. You know, Tim, Tim said we're building a discipleship culture that we're investing in, um, and we're always starting with the end in mind. And I think this is important for us to consider when we consider others. The idea here in this text, others, is the most important piece. It's where the emphasis of this text is. You know, when, when we read 2 Timothy, the point is not heard. The point is not faithful men. But he says this, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others. That's the, that's the key piece. The emphasis here is Paul is implementing multi-generational discipleship. Timothy, you should be seeing down, farther down the road of what is going to take place here. Um, let me close with this, and Brian will switch quickly here. If you're looking at that plan, and you're Satan wanting to destroy this, who, who are you going to go after in this setup? Who, who's the most strategic person to take out in order to make this weak? Paul, right? And I want to encourage you guys, because I want you to be prepared you know, if you are desiring to step into a discipleship relationship and disciple somebody, you're going to experience things that are out of the norm. You're going to experience tax. You're going to experience a desire. You know what? I just don't want to meet this week. You know what? You know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm busy. Or you're going to have all kinds of excuses. You might even have just your normal schedule be the thing that keeps you away from it. Be prepared. Be on your knees earnestly for this because this picture is the most vital thing we can do in building a discipleship culture is see the strategy behind what Paul is communicating to Timothy. Make sense? All right. I rambled. I apologize. Let me pray for us and Brian will we'll switch here. Um, Father, we come before you. We, God, we just, we lift up <laughs> this desire Lord, it's earnest. We, we long to invest in um, others. Lord, we long to invest in people who want to grow uh, faithfully. Father, I pray for um, just each person in here and people who aren't able to be here tonight that have a desire to, to invest in this discipleship culture. God, would you um, raise up an endurance and a strength and a passion like Paul's, that just has such a concern for the churches that they open themselves up freely to another individual to know them um, wholly and completely. Uh, God, that you would use that relationship to move, um, Lord, not only that individual, that faithful person to a deeper walk in Christ, but also be able to move and advance your kingdom, um, not only here at LCF, but in Liberty and globally, the world beyond. Father, would you use this willingness that we have? I pray this in your name. Amen.